We're going to start today an important section of teaching, and it's a section on developing proper attitudes. Often, we have found in our mission that the person was an excellent performer of the, the deeds and knew very well how to uh, teach, how to do everything properly in a CEF manner. But their attitudes were so poor that it caused their ministry to be really diminished in effectiveness. So what we'd like to do is to share with you a series on developing proper attitudes so that your attitudes behind what you say will be proper and that people will not react to your person. If they're reacting to how you say what you say, or they're reacting to your person, they will not listen to what you're saying. We want to turn in our Bibles to Ezekiel 28. I would like to identify, which I feel is probably the most difficult of all of the, or the most wicked of all sins. I, I see it as the bottom line of all problems. If you're going to take problems and trace them down to their root, if there was one area, one root problem, one root cause of everything, I would think that that would have to be pride. And let's go in the scripture and let's do a study now in the area of pride. Open to Ezekiel chapter 28, and in that passage we want to see what God says, why, answering the question, why was Satan cast out of heaven? Why did God put him out of his presence? Let's see if we get some insights from Ezekiel and Isaiah, and then we want to do a study through the Old and New Testament to look at the information. In Ezekiel 28:11, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up thy lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealeth up this with this woven gold and precious stones. And light came from him, and light passed through these stones, giving off a myriad of beautiful colors. So here we have these beautiful colors, these rainbow colors, coming from his person. The second thing it said was that the tablets and pipes were in him the day it was created. It's interesting, if you go to a doctor, and if you were having tablets or pipes problem, and ask him to check them, he can't. You and I do not have those. Those are Hebrew words for musical instruments. So it seems like, in the enemy, that you have music, and you also have uh, light and color together. It said he was the anointed cherub that covered. I have set thee so thou was upon the holy mountain of God, thou walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. The anointed cherub. Some feel, it says thee, that he was the one who was anointed and covered the throne of God. And Satan was involved with worship. And so he was involved in the music of heaven. Dr. McGee, who was my pastor for a number of years, said when Satan was cast out of heaven, he was thrown into the choir loft. So obviously Dr. McGee had some real problems with the choir loft or the music in his church. But it's interesting today how we've hooked up so much music and light. And then it says that thou was perfect in the ways, in thy ways, from the day that thou was created, till iniquity was found in thee. 
What was the iniquity? By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. Thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mount of God. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the stones of fire. Here it comes. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by the reason of thy brightness, and I will cast thee to the ground. So here is a real indication that here Satan's heart was lifted up and he was cast out of heaven. Let's go to one more passage that deals with this, Isaiah 14. And it even asks the question, how did all this take place? In Isaiah 14, 12, he asks this important question, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the angels or the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. So here we have the seven affirmations of the enemy, the seven I wills. But first of all, we want to notice some very important teaching. In Isaiah 14, Verse 13, we need to ask ourselves this question, where did he say this? And our first idea is, oh, he said it in heaven. Yes, that was the place, but actually if you go back and look, it said he said it in his heart. Probably one of the most important things you'll learn from this Attitude Series is that what you and I say in our heart is the most important conversations that we have. Jesus said, if you know what a man is saying in his heart, you know what he is. And it said that Satan, we don't have any indication that Satan ever said these words out loud. It just said he said them in his heart. So we know that God knows what we say in our heart. In fact, David said, there is not a thought I have in my heart that you don't know altogether. And so it's extremely important that we know that God knows what we're thinking. God knows the conversations we have with ourselves. In fact, one of the major causes of depression in a Christian is what they say in their hearts. If you would listen to what you say to yourself when you make a mistake, you will find often you're very unkind. And you may be more, more unkind with yourself than you'd ever be with anyone else. So be careful because what you say in your heart is extremely important. A study as you go through scripture is just looking at, at various passages that deal with this. It says in the Psalms, the wicked man says certain things in his heart. The unrighteous says certain things in his heart. Then it says the righteous say certain things in the heart. So our inward conversations are extremely important. We want to look at the very last I will of the seven, and it's in Isaiah 14, 14, where he said, I will be like the Most High. He could have used any word that he wanted to for the name of God. And we know that the names of God are significant and they indicate important areas of truth. And he said, I will be like the Most High. The word there is El Elyon. El Elyon, one of the aspects of that name of God is the name that means the one who exercises sovereignty in heaven and on the earth. And so here you have Satan saying, I want to be like the sovereign one that reigns, who reigns sovereignly in the heavens 
and sovereignly on the earth. Now, what is he saying? He's saying this. I desire to be like God in control, but not like God in character. Fred Dickerson, who teaches at Moody, says this, and I think it's probably one of the most significant things uh, that he says about this whole thing of the enemy. He says this, Satan sold his rebellious philosophy to mankind, and he rules over all who have fallen into sin. He promotes with a vengeance and by multiplied means his concept of creature-centered living. That is the whole crux of the whole thing. What is Satan doing today? Satan is putting pressure on men and women and boys and girls to be creature-centered. That the most important thing is my happiness. Building life around me. Around what I think. Around what I want. And so on. Creature-centered living. I've gone through the Bible and I put CC where God talks about creature-centered living, and I put CC where God calls us to Christ-centered living. So you might want to look at that. Remember what Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny creature-centered living. In fact, let him die to his own natural inclinations and follow me. The only way to follow the Lord, the only way to walk with the Lord, is to die to self. You and I need to die in order to live. Are you willing to die? Are you willing to die to self? That's extremely important. Die to self that you and I might live. So Isaiah 14 is the epitome of pride. Pride, in essence, is building life around me. The most important thing in the world is my happiness. We say this so often. My happiness. I want to be happy. People get divorces and they say the reason I got a divorce was so because God wants me happy. Although what about the unhappiness of your family? What about the unhappiness of the children? Well that's not important. My happiness is the most important. Let's do a study on pride in the book of Proverbs. We want to go through the book of Proverbs and let's see what it says about he that is proud. Turn to Proverbs chapter 6 as we want to go through and look at every verse dealing with pride in this book. What does God say about this thing of pride? I have come to the conclusion, as we said before, that after in counseling, and we counsel people, and we deal with surface problems, and then we deal with surface causes, and we deal with root problems, and we deal with root causes, beneath, as far as I'm concerned, all of this is going to be this whole thing of pride. Pride is so devastating. So let's look at Proverbs 6.16. This is what he says. These six things does the Lord hate, Yea, seven are abomination unto him. And the very first thing on God's hate list. And God wants us to hate what he hates. And the first thing is pride in the countenance. When God sees pride registered in my countenance, God hates it. So a proud look is something that God hates. 
Because pride that's in the look is pride that's in the heart. Because what's in the heart will be uh, manifested in our countenance. It's interesting in scripture how God talks about in his word about he is the health of our countenance. Okay, let's look at Proverbs 6, 8. It says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And the very first thing in God's evil list is pride and arrogancy. Then he says, the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. And so here we have God hates pride as much as an evil lifestyle. Someone who's living an evil lifestyle and someone who may be proud over his righteous lifestyle. God says, I hate that as much as I hate the one is an evil lifestyle. So we have to realize that pride is absolutely devastating as far as God is concerned. And what is pride? Building life around myself. Being more concerned about my reputation than God's reputation. Uh, pride uh, can be uh, come into our life through praise. And have to be very, very careful. When people praise us, if we do not reflect that praise, it could begin to spread a net for our feet. It says, frankly, flattery is a form of hatred. And flattery is like um, a snare that you have for a bird. You don't see it, the bird lands and you snare them. And flattery can be a snare. So we want to reflect praise. So be very careful when someone comes and says that you do well. Try to put that on someone or something else in a way that is not sickening. I've heard people trying to reflect praise and did it in such a way that it was just sickening, saccharine, sweet. So reflect praise in a proper way and in a way that will give glory to God. One of the simplest ways of reflecting praise is when someone comes to you and says, I really appreciate what you did. I really like that. Or that was a very excellent song. Or you really teach an excellent lesson. You know, if people tell you you're an excellent teacher and that you teach wonderful lessons, if you hold on to that enough, eventually you're going to begin to believe that. And then all of a sudden, God's hand is going to come off your ministry. And you're going to be performing, in a sense, but with no power or any blessing. So when someone says to you, I really appreciate that, it's a simple thing to say, that's encouraging. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And what you're doing is you're reflecting back on the individual because most people are not trying to set a net for your feet, but what they want to do is to encourage you. So when they said you did a good job, just thank them sincerely and say that was encouraging. Then they went back, they feel good because by saying something, uh, you let them know it was an encouragement to you. It is encouraging to know that what you're doing is a benefit to somebody. Who wants to minister and minister and minister and is a benefit to nobody? There is no point in it. Maybe we need to change or so on. So that can be very important that you reflect it back on the individual. Let's turn to Proverbs 11.2. It says, when pride comes, then comes shame. Now that's a promise, but you'll never hear that claimed in a promise meeting. But there are many promises in the Word of God that no one will ever claim. They're still true and still a promise. God says, if I allow pride in my life and I refuse to deal with it, it will bring me to shame. Can you think of men who have major ministries in this land, men that you know of that, are, that have come to shame? You don't have to be a judgmental person. Just a discernment says what? 
there was pride that came into their ministry. Do you know there's something worse than failure, and that is to become proud over your success. You know, can God trust you with success? Because if success leads you to pride, it will lead you to shame and eventually to your downfall. So you want to be successful, and I want to be successful. And we want to, I, I like what Bill Gothard said. Bill said, we need to focus on the depth of our ministry, the depth of our message, that what we have to say is worthwhile for hearers to hear it. And if we will deepen our message and deepen our walk, God will take care of the breadth of the ministry. If we have something to say, God will see we have a place to say it. And God often will deepen our ministry, give us a broad uh, ministry, and then we deepen our ministry and a broad ministry. And it's kind of like an opening and closing. Realize that. That just keep deepening your ministry. Many men do not deepen their ministry. They do something and it's well. They don't work on it. They don't try to polish it. They don't try to make it deeper. And all of a sudden, they've got no place to say it. They've said it, and they've said their little whatever, and that's it, and it's all over with. So deepen your ministry. Continue to grow in Christ. Now the next one we want to look at is Proverbs 13.10. It says, Only by pride cometh contention. Only. That's an absolute. Whenever you see believers in contention, if you see an area of CEF in contention, what does the scripture says? Only by pride. That is an absolute. You can claim it. You can stand on it. And it is true. So where you see contention going on, you know there's pride. Like the nerve. Don't they realize? I can't believe they would do this. Can't they see? Don't they know? I'm right. All of that kind of thing. It's a terrible thing. Pride and contention go together. Hand in hand. Another one. Proverbs 15, 25. Proverbs 15, 25. It says, the Lord will destroy the house of the proud. That is probably one of the strongest of all the warnings that we have in Proverbs about pride. You have to think about that. What is God talking about? Destroying the house of the proud. We are constantly getting telephone calls from people whose homes are being destroyed. And it's not because they have termite problems. It's not because of earthquakes. It's not because of tornadoes. And he's not talking about fires. He's talking about the families that live in the house are being destroyed. Just recently, in fact, right now, we're waiting for a phone call from a man who graduated from one of the most prominent seminaries, evangelical seminaries in America, whose house is falling apart. I called him. This recently was off speaking before I left. I called him at midnight and talked to him to 1.30 in the morning. His whole family, everything that meant something to him, is crashing down around his ankles because this man was lifted up with pride, building life around himself and his own desires, and everything that means anything to him is slowly crumbling and falling apart. God's word is true. Guard against pride. Put a pride guard out. You know, ask your wife, ask your husband, ask your director, ask your committee. Do you see that I am becoming prideful? And if you see it, tell me, because I do not want to be destroyed. 
I want my ministry to be meaningful. Okay, let's look at another one. It says in Proverbs 16.5, Everyone that is another absolute, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That includes God's people. How can a Christian become an abomination? You become an abomination when you allow pride to be in your heart, building life around yourself. Another one, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit will precede a fall. When you see a ministry being destroyed, you know that there is pride involved in that ministry because God says so. Look at Proverbs 28, 25. Proverbs 28, 25. He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. Isn't that interesting? He says, if you see pride, if you see strife and contention, you can know that pride is at the bottom line of this whole thing. If you see a local director struggling with his committee, and I don't mean just the normal struggles of working things out, but when you see this contention, and you see strife, you know that there's pride involved, and it must be dealt with. Look at Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride shall bring him low. You and I should pray every day about pride. You and I should ask the Lord to show us, are we? in any way allowing pride to come into our life. Let's see the dynamics of this. Let's turn to Proverbs. I mean, let's turn to the book of James. James chapter 4. And let's look at the dynamics. Why is it that a man will fall if he doesn't deal with this whole thing of pride? James chapter 4 verse 6, tells us something extremely important. He says, But God gives more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, what is he talking about here? We need to understand terms that we might understand what is going on. He says that God gives grace. Well, what is grace? Turn with me to Philippians 2.13, because I'd like you to see that. Philippians 2.13 tells us, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In Philippians 1.6, it says we have this confidence that he which hath begun a good work in me will perform it on the day of Christ. So if you and I have trusted Christ as our Savior from sin, then he has begun a work in us. He said, I will continue that work until you're presented to Christ in glory. And then in Philippians 2.13, the Apostle Paul tells us something that's really unique. And he tells us, he said, not only has uh, God going to do a work in you, but I'll tell you, he's doing two things in that work. He that worketh in you, 
both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So the first thing he's doing is to will. That is the desire. God is working in my heart, and he's giving me the desire within me to want to please him. God is giving me the desire to want to walk with him. God is giving me the desire to want to serve him. Then the second thing it says he will do, that he will give me the to-do. So God gives me the desire and the power to do his good pleasure. Now what is he saying? God empowers me when he puts the desire there to be able to do and to live in a way that would be pleasing or acceptable unto him. So God is calling you into a specific kind of ministry. God is going to empower you to do that ministry. And you have to believe it. It is true. It's to be accepted by faith. What is faith? Faith is simply believing that what God said here is true. This is not a conditional promise. This is an unconditional promise. So if God gives you a desire for a certain kind of ministry or a specialized ministry in CEF, then the one thing that you can know is that he will empower you to do that ministry. There is no way that you could tell me God is calling me to do this ministry. He's laid it on my heart, but I'm not able to do it. That is not true. So God gives grace to the humble. But let's look here. Back to the book of James. God gives not grace to the humble, but God gives more grace to the humble. What does that mean? That God will give to me a greater desire, a greater power than what I need. So we never run out of grace. There is always more grace. There is always more of God's empowering. So tomorrow, whatever God calls me to do, what do I know? I know that God is going to give to me more grace for tomorrow. Isn't that a tremendous thing, knowing I have more grace? I don't know what I'm going to need, but I know this, that tomorrow I will have more grace than what I need to be able to go through tomorrow. Now, if this is true, and often when I speak, I'll say, if this is true, and I don't mean the word if as if it isn't so, but since it is so, then why are there so many losers on the winning team? If God is giving me more power than what I need to live a life that would be pleasing to him, then why am I not, excuse me, why am I not pleasing him? Why are so many people living in defeat? And it tells us this. It says, God gives more grace. God resists the proud. And I visualize that. As I look at that, I see God's hand coming down and pushing like a football player. Is God resisting you? Is God resisting your efforts? Is God resisting you in your ministry? Is God resisting you in reaching the children? What would ever cause God to resist you when he said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to everybody? Why would God resist your ministry in, in the going? Because he said this, he resists those who refuse to deal with Christ. And so when here you are, 
trying to do the ministry of God, and God pulls his power off your life. You know, I've heard people say, without Christ, I can do nothing. You know, that's not true. Without Christ, you can do, but what it counts for is nothing. You can do and do and do, but basically, the eternal benefit of what you're doing is nothing. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, let's look. He says that God gives grace to the humble. I see the scripture, you know, it says, If God be for us, who can be against us? But God, if God is against me, does it make any difference who's for me? If God is resisting me, I don't care who's for you. Your ministry is going to be dwarfed. Now he says that God gives grace to the humble. Here's the key. Humility versus pride. Pride is building my life around me. Becoming self-centered, I-centered, me-centered. A humble man is one who wants to build his life around Christ and realizes without the empowerment of God, what I do is going to not count for eternity. It's someone who says, God, without your empowering, what I'm going to do is going to amount to nothing. And Lord, I don't want my life to, to amount to nothing. What did Paul say? Paul said, I bring my body to the subjection of Christ lest I run the race and at the end realizing that there is nothing of my life of eternal significance. I trust that when you come to the end of your race that you're going to find that it isn't one big zero. Look at the book of Hebrews. It kind of talks about this. It talks about as we run the race. Look at uh, Hebrews 12. It says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are the witnesses? All of these godly people that lived the life of faith. These people who had to believe that God is and that God will reward those who believe that he is. That God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And without faith, and faith is simply believing the written account of God. Believing this. And it's not that easy at times, is it? God gives us his word. And it's not always easy to believe the word. You think of Moses. Now we read Moses' life and we know what's going to happen. You think of Noah where God told him to build a boat. And he was building a boat so far, as far as we know, from any water. It took a lot of faith. Now, God told him to do it. But we know that he had faith because he built the boat. Think of Moses there at the edge of uh, the water where he was, possibly the Red Sea, standing there. And God said, lift your rod over the water. Now, Moses had never lifted his rod over water. Moses did not know what was going to happen. And I think God said, Moses, just to motivate you a little bit to be obedient to me, what I want to do is I'll send an army. So he sent an Egyptian army, and he said, Moses, just to, to motivate you to raise. And imagine standing before all those people and raising that stick. What would happen if nothing happened? Do you see? Often God puts us in that situation. And pride will step in. Well, what will happen if nothing happens? Here we, we believe we have the mind of the Lord. Here we believe we have the word of the Lord. And God wants us to step out 
and we're going to step out, and then all of a sudden we get this doubt, what if nothing happens? Maybe I ought to raise the rod in the dark of night when nobody's around. So if nothing happens, nobody will know. And so Moses raised the rod, and the water parted, and he saw something he never saw before. And you have all of these men and women, these great men and women of faith in the Bible, who simply did what God told them to do, and God honored them, and God used them in a mighty way. And God is looking for men and women in this class right now to honor God in the very same way, just simply believing what he said. Remember this, obedience must Precede understanding. Obedient must precede understanding. He said, seeing that we're compassed about with this great cloud of witnesses in chapter 11 that walked by faith, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us and let us run with pace, uh, let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Tremendous teaching here. Tremendous teaching. Let us look at this. As we run before this cloud of witnesses, let us, and who are the witnesses? The men of faith. He says, let us run with patience this race. And running, if we're going to run that way, there's two things we must do. We must lay aside every weight. Now, my son ran cross-country. And running cross-country and wanting to win, you, if you took off more clothes, you'd be arrested. You, what you do is you lay aside every encumbrance that there is to win. You lay aside anything that will weigh you, to, to hold you back. That's every weight. And then the sin that so easily entraps our feet. What is that? You know, the enemy knows your combination. The enemy knows that sin that will so easily beset you. I trust that you will examine your heart. As you run the, the, this course of faith, as you run, look to the author and the finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay aside the weights. The weights are those things that are not necessarily sin. They just slow us down. Do you want to win? If you want to be a winner, you will go the second mile. You will lay aside things that will slow you down. You need to ask the Lord, Lord, are there things in my life that will keep me from being a winner? And you don't look at other people. This is something for the Spirit of God to reveal to you. I believe in our walk of faith or our life of faith, there should be, we should be like uh, uh, litterers. Our whole life, we should be throwing off things as we move along, we say, well, this thing is not going to help me to win. I'm going to throw it off. If you're going to win, you're going to throw these things aside. And one of them even is convenience and comfort. I would come home from the office here, and I would come in, and here it would be cold. And there would be my son running his 12 miles after school or his 15 miles after school, whatever he was running, six miles. He ran different things, different days. But it didn't make any difference. It was raining or snowing or what the weather was like. He wasn't sitting inside being comfortable. He was out running the race. Why? Because he wanted to be a winner. And so he ran when the, 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 the conditions of outside were not favorable because he wanted to win. 
And so he laid aside those personal comforts because he wanted to be a successful cross-country runner. And you and I need to do the same thing. And then we need to identify what is a sin that so easily besets us. We want to look at that in the book of James. Because as we go back now and look in the book of James, we will see the significance of this besetting sin. We'll also see the significance of what God is trying to teach us in James chapter 4. Turn back to James chapter 4. And now he's going to give us some specific steps that you and I must follow in order that we might be winners. We want to stop right now and have a word of prayer and we'll pick up tomorrow at verse 7. Father, we thank you for the opportunity of running in this race. And Father, you have called us to be leaders. And we know it's even more significant that we carefully look at the race that is set before us. That we examine and to see, are there weights that are slowing us in our process of Christ-likeness? Oh, Father, may we be willing before you right now to say, Lord, any area of my life that would slow me down, any area of my life that would cause me to uh, be hindered or encumbered, oh, Father, I am willing to set it aside. Lord, also, if there is a sin that is so easily entrapping me, Father, I ask that as we study in your word together, that your Holy Spirit might show me. Am I touching? Am I one who is very sensitive and very open to resentments? Am I a worrier? Am I one given to anger? Am I one given to impurity? All Father, we trust that your spirit would move in a mighty way as we continue to study these various attitudes that are essential for us to be successful in our Christian ministry. We ask this that you would be glorified. 